Welcome to the Woke STEM Teacher Podcast. I'm your host, the one and only Woke STEM Teacher, and I have a new teacher's assistant here with me today. Malika, can you say what's up? Hi, guys. I'm Malika from Atlanta. Did you want me to introduce Yeah, no, we, we can keep it at that because we're going to get into you and who you are and what you do a little bit more later on. Uh, okay. okay, so we're going to... We're going to uh, start with our teacher feature for this episode. Um, so our teacher feature for today is Miss Ramona Smith. She is a 31-year-old high school teacher from Houston. Uh, so recently, she won the 2018 Toastmasters World Championship. So she beat out 30,000 pub- public speakers from around the world, pretty much, which is an amazing Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen like a few articles going around about her. Like it's a really big deal. Uh, and if you all are not familiar with Toastmasters, it's an organization that uh, focuses on teaching public speaking skills. I'm sorry, public speaking skills and um, leadership skills. Mm. So those are like the two focal points of it. And Malika and I, we actually have a friend who is like really heavily involved with Toastmasters. As every other weekend at Spelman, she's like killing it. Oh, see, I didn't even know it was that often. Okay. Okay. So she can be the next <laughs> What'd you say? It seems like it, but don't let me tell any lies. You know, she's very busy now getting her PhD. So, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> But um, so Ramona Smith, she competed against nine other finalists in Chicago. So that's where they held the world championship, Um, spoke in front of a crowd of 2000 plus people. Um, What's really amazing about this win for her is she is the second black woman to win the public speaking championship in all of the years that this organization has existed. And she's the fifth woman overall to win. So it's like a really, really amazing yes, thing. All the black girl magic. Uh, yes, right. Oh, look, I'm I'm always like Issa Rae say I'm always for everybody black yes. until I find out they problematic. Then I gotta change gears. Right? It's always when you like really, really love someone and you're like, oh no, I don't want to know anything else because I know that it's gonna dig up receipts. Yep. Ramona sounds like. <laughs> She's incredible, and she's really out here making a great difference. It really does sound like that. I'm trying to get on her level. But let's go into story time. So my story for today is kind of related to Ramona in a way. Um, The reason I really wanted to make her the teacher feature is because not only, you know, the fact that she's the second black woman to win this championship and she beat out all these people, but one of the things that I've struggled with most in my life, and I think that a lot of people struggle with, it's like the number one fear of most people in this world, which I thought was interesting, is with, I struggle with public speaking. And I've talked to you about this like plenty of times before, (laughs) because, you know, I think we share, we kind of share that or I think you you got it down now. Hey, you know, I give you all the props because <laughs> I'm still trying. To it's still so hard. I'm, <laughs> I'm still like always so nervous whenever I get ready to speak in front of people. It's just I think it's very ironic that the universe put us in 
professions where that's what we have to do all the time. Yes, right? Because when I tell people that I have a fear of public speaking, they they always react in the same way. It's always like, (laughs) but you're a teacher. And, you know, you public, you get up and you speak publicly to students every day. And I always have to tell them, but it's not the same. It Well, it doesn't feel the same to me. Like when I walk into the classroom, I know what I'm getting myself into. I know that the people who are there, the students who are there, they are there to gain knowledge from me. So I have something to give. You know what I mean? And I know I have something to give them. I don't always feel like I know that I have something to give when I'm within a situation where I am speaking publicly because yeah, because with adults, it's a little different. You know, like I feel like adults are more judgy and, you know, if they, if they ain't trying to hear what you got to say, they will start talking while you're talking or, you know, like it's like very little things. And I'm not saying that like my students don't talk sometimes, but they know that the reason that we're there, that, you know, I have something to offer them within the classroom. It's almost like I have to be, <laughs> I feel like mm. teaching is a profession where you kind of have to oh, be an yes. entertainer. So I'm walking into the and I look, I'm going to say this. I, <laughs> I feel like I have to be the Beyonce of my classroom. Like I walk in, I have to immediately engage them and like draw these, um, draw a certain like energy and reaction vibes from them. Uh, so I'm like dancing in circles. I'm doing everything that I need to do to keep the attention of my audience. And I can do that flawlessly. But when it comes to public speaking in any other yeah, setting, I, I, I definitely relate so to much. that. Like, I think my fear is is with adults, though, because um, kids will give you indicators when you're losing them and you can adjust. But adults may sit there and like smile at you politely mm-hmm. and then ask you a bunch of stuff that you've already said or mm-hmm. criticize you and challenge you. <laughs> it's like, oh, my God, what do I do? <laughs> yes. So, yeah, it's... Um, <laughs> For me, I feel like with um, with kids, you kind of like can get a, a sense of like how you're doing with them. And you also kind of know what they want to hear. Um, but adults are like, when, even when you're speaking to them, especially if it's like um, something that you're supposed to be a subject matter expert in, um, sometimes they can be challenging you Mm -hmm. like you can tell that as you're speaking to the room they're challenging you in their heads as you're speaking and um (laughs) and so then that's when that imposter syndrome kicks in and you're like okay am I the most qualified person in the room to speak on this subject or you know um it makes you second guess like (laughs) more so than even having a script like knowing exactly what I'm gonna say I have to kind of go in like a boxer. That's that's kind of how I prepare for public speaking. Like I go in, like kind of feeling myself playing Jay-Z beforehand mm-hmm. and, you know, getting prepped up and getting hyped up so that I feel like I belong in a room. So if I do go off script, it's not that big of a deal because my confidence isn't waning too much. I need to I need to get some tips from you, girl. I need to be doing that too. Cause I, I, I am the very, like, you know, me very logical, very like, 
things this way, structured this way. So I'm like, okay, here are my notes. I'm looking at my notes. I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to say. I don't want to get too far off topic. Like, and, and I agree with you. Like people, adults will just yeah. sit there and they'll stare at you and give you no reaction. <laughs> they'll just look at you. You can't tell if they like it or if they don't <laughs> most times. With stu- I mean, and <laughs> some some of my students are the same way, but for the most part, I can tell, you know, if they if they start to get off task or like, you know, start talking or anything like that, then I'm like, okay, let me change gears. But adults would they would just stare at you and <laughs> I don't know how to work with that. Yeah, it's it's like uh, adults have this code of uh, ethics that just kind of boils down to manners, where it's just pulling the mm-hmm. don't speak while other people are speaking mantra, but taking it so far of not even giving nonverbal cues that you're engaged. Um, mm-hmm. so yes. Then afterwards, I'm like, did y'all, did y'all like it? <laughs> like, did I do a good job? <laughs> This is what I'll try to do when I'm when I'm speaking. I will try to find the one person who is kind of looking like they're not in their head. You know, like there's always like one person who will nod in agreement or whatever, and that's the person I'm like trying to focus on. Because I'm like, at least they're right. giving me something. <laughs> you know, I'm working on it. I mean, this podcast alone is a way to you know kind of get a feel for public speaking. It's not public speaking in the way that. My fear of it is, but it's progress. You're doing a really amazing <laughs> job. So, yeah, all praise. Thank mm-hmm. you. <laughs> uh, do you have a story? That um, you kind of related to the public speaking um, part. I remember uh, I was at I was at a shelter earlier this year, and we we had been at the shelter for a few years. Um, but this was a mixed um, batch of kids where some of the kids were um, new to the program and some of them had been with us for a little bit over a year. And um, I had mm-hmm. uh, a prospective advisory board member in the room and a teacher's assistant in the room. And I was just the, the uh, advisory board member was observing to see whether or not she wanted to join the organization and I was kind of um, training the teacher's mm-hmm. assistant so that she can be ready when the main teacher comes in. And um, I'm not I'm not like a, mm-hmm. a aggressive um, speaker to children, like <laughs> you know. So at some point, um, the class is two hours, right? At some point, the the kids are just like, mm-hmm. "Bump it, Miss Malika. We're gonna do our own thing." We're going to paint what we want to paint. We're going to, you know, like, and I remember my voice got softer and softer and softer because when I get anxious, I I, um, pull into myself. And I remember I was just so exhausted from Mm -hmm. trying to get these kids to get on track and um, and just like by the time I I left out, I was like literally whispering. And I just like they really <laughs> did me in, and I was I was laughing uh, a lot because I think I had gotten just so used to teenagers um, at the other shelters, and these kids were in middle mm-hmm. school, 
And so they were just, you know, giving off a different different dynamic than our high schoolers. And so, <laughs> yeah, I was just exhausted. And I was like, oh, my gosh. I thought, you know, I've been doing this work for eight years. And it's just always um, interesting how how humbling the work is and how humbling working with kids is, you know, where um, even if you feel like you've mastered it, you can have one of those days where you walk out and you're like, oh my gosh, I have to go take a nap right now. Mm-hmm. You're right about that. Cause I, I'm, I have those days every now and then where I just want to <laughs> pull away and just be, <laughs> I just want to walk out the classroom. <laughs> and, and I can't, and that's the thing, like there are no moments where I can take time to myself within class time. So I've learned to like find ways to c- kind of, I don't want to say cope, but work around that until I can have a moment to myself. Um, I don't, I don't get quieter though. <laughs> I probably get, I want to say louder cause I don't yell at the students, but I think my tone gets more like assertive. And that is when my students are like, okay, she's for real. Cause usually I'm yeah. kind of more joking, you know, like a lighter tone and, you know, it's more conversational than like me talking at you and right. telling you what to do, being controlling or anything like that. I like that, though. That's <laughs> that's good. I mean, it was, I mean, it was wasn't good for you in the me. moment. I, mean, I, I thought about this moment I had um, in India, and um, there's this photo that corresponds with it where we had just pulled off our first program in India, and the were just being kids and they were you know running free and mm-hmm. there's this photo of me like standing in a sari like leaned up against a table with my um hands over my eyes on my forehead and the kids are just like going back <laughs> and it was like, that mm-hmm. moment it, it, it was definitely replicated at the what did the perspective you said there was a advisory board a potential advisory board member there oh yeah Yeah, well she had worked in shelters before so um she wasn't spooked too much um but uh, the purpose for her being there was to be able to give feedback about how we can um um better integrate our our uh, objectives into our in shelter program and so, mm-hmm. I mean, if anything, she just got a lot of information on what <laughs> what we can do to improve. <laughs> yeah, you got to start somewhere. And I mean, I think, like like you said, if this is a potential board member, you want you kind of want them to come in with some ideas too, like how something fresh, you know, because they're a fresh set of eyes. They don't see some of the things that you might. That I'm sorry you might not see some of the things that they notice, you know, right. coming not looking in. Well, we're going to move on to our main topic. So the focus of this episode is on art education and shop art, which is Malika's nonprofit organization. So I want to, I want to start with like you kind of talking about what shop art is, the purpose of the organization, and then why did you start the organization? Sure. Um, so Chop Art is a um, 501c3 
nonprofit based in Atlanta. Uh, we provide arts-based services for homeless teens or teens experiencing homelessness. So that um, that um, identifier would change depending on where we are. Um, the The purpose of it is to provide dignity, community, and opportunity to teens who are experiencing homelessness through arts mentorship, arts immersion, um, and different kinds of um, programming. So we do two main things. We, um, we have year-round programs in shelters where the teens participate in art shows and arts presentation. They have uh, ongoing mentorship and, um, and they also are able to uh, just really build relationships with each other and find that community with each other. And then we have our uh, one-week performing arts camp, which is called Camp Envision. Um, and that that camp is really close to my heart because the teens actually designed it. And so um, I just love how excited. Yeah, they, we did a um, camp in 2015. And um, mm-hmm. from the feedback they gave us, um, that's how we got Camp Envision to do an overnight um, performing arts model. And um, yeah, it's for a lot of our loves. It's the only time of the year where they know where they're going to stay, what they're going to eat, um, that they get to mm-hmm. hang out with their friends and they look forward to it so much. Um, so it's, it's a really special time for, for me and the volunteers who come out. Um, yeah, we just love it so much. And, and I'm telling you, I've always wished that I could come. <laughs> when One day we're going to get you <laughs> Yes, because you know, I love, 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 love working with uh, well, I love working with middle school and high school age children. It's definitely. Oh, I love working with all children. <laughs> Those right. What'd you it's, say? It's definitely hard work, though. I think that's one thing that um, some of our volunteers, when they come in, which I, I know that you know this, but some of our volunteers, when they come in, I don't think they really realize how hard the work will be. Um, but like working with um, kids who have had experiences with adults that have made them distrust adults working with kids where this is the only time mm-hmm. of the year where they actually get to be a kid and they don't have to be looking out for their whole family um kids who have like mm-hmm. really deep traumas that come out in a lot of ways that look like behavior issues to us um but for them it's like just really crying for help i think having all of those things concentrated with 100 homeless teens who some of them don't know each other. So that also, that's also that dynamic of like the conflict of building relationships. Um, oh, we have all the other stuff that come <laughs> along with having a whole bunch of teenagers together, like all the romances and the love triangles and everybody wanted. And, and, the, and also something I find very interesting is that they kind of, them and their parents, they like save up all their money to get their hair done, like get braids before camp or their haircut and come with um, a new outfit and all this stuff. So it's also like low key a fashion show, which is not something I expected. <laughs> but impress, you know. I love it. I love it. And they go to the clothing closet we provide and like pick out clothes and stun on each other and trade clothes so they can stun on somebody else. It's just, 
I just love it. It's like they get a chance to just do all the things that they want to do as teenagers without having to worry about their basic needs. Yes. And you see, I I I wish there were more opportunities for teens like this in certain in situations like that where, you know, what can what can be done? What kind of social, emotional, academic work can be done if these children did not have to worry about, like you said, their basic needs, so where they're staying, what they're eating, the clothes on their back. Um, I think that's one of the issues with a lot of lower income schools. You know, there are so many children that come into these schools, and I've worked in schools in Chicago that were like that. They come into school and they don't have their basic needs met, which is why I will gladly let a child sleep in my class if they couldn't get sleep the night before at home. Or I'll gladly give food to a student if they didn't have the chance to eat the night before. You know, like, but not having those basic needs, you can't get, you can't, I can't pull anything from this child emotionally, academically. I can't meet pulling things from them if their basic needs are met. It's a struggle being a teacher and like trying to find that balance. And honestly, I would rather get reprimanded by whoever my direct administrator is about, you know, letting a student sleep in class than just not giving this. It's it's so funny because (laughs) um, I think when it comes to arts education, there's so much uh, stigma around it when it's employed um, to solve our like societal issues, right? A lot of times people see arts as a luxury that you practice as a hobby and then you do for free when you get a, an adult, right? But I'm not going to get on that soapbox. But, um, <laughs> but you know, when <laughs> I, I, I make the argument that um, Arts education is a is one uh, practicing the arts um, teaches you problem solving skills. It teaches you how to be creative in a way that you goal set, uh, in a way that you get to your goal. Um, it teaches you yeah. perseverance and team building, um, but it also just uh, overall increases your eff- efficacy. Right, um, are things that are gonna allow. Yeah them to create the reality they want to create in their life um and and so a a lot of times we get flack because we're not a housing organization or we're not a food bank um but we are investing in the mental well-being of our teens which is such a a a area an area that has been passed over um but the teens who participate in our program improve in school um, at least 68% of our teens um, go into honor courses after they have started Chop Art, you know. And so also make the case that, you know, other programs yeah. um, benefit from ours, you know, um, because the teens now can focus, you know, in, in tutorial and focus in class. Actually, reading, I read an article about the link between academics and it was like a study about the link between academics and art education and like the benefits, uh, the academic benefits of, you know, providing art 
art-related classes or providing art-related opportunities for students. So I do think you're right. Like um, you've seen it firsthand, obviously. <laughs> like you said, your students take in those honors classes, but like it's definitely a thing. It's a, you know, something that has been studied before. So you had brought up something. You said, I'm not going to get on my soapbox, but I want oh. you to get on your soapbox. <laughs> <laughs> oh, just about like the value of the arts. And and um, and this is just kind of fresh on my mind because I just spent the last two days um, participating in a task force for the city of Atlanta to figure out how we can create more equity through the arts. Um, mm-hmm. And um, and yeah, it's just, I think that uh, one, of course, the arts has uh, an immense value in our society, but the value, the monetary value that we put on the arts does not translate um, the impact in which the arts um, provides. And so um, even things as simple as um, calling people, calling artists and arts organizations to the table to be a part of a project and not having a budget for those individuals, you know, just assuming that the work will be free um, and not valuing what they are able to bring to the table, not valuing the impact of the arts. Um, and then understanding how that then contributes to, to inequities, you know, who's able to practice art um, to even be able to get into that career field, who's able to be paid from art, at what point in their career are they able to be um, pay from art. And so, yeah, there's, there's this dynamic. And another thing that we, we uh, advocate for through Chop Art is to pay artists, pay arts organizations and value people for their work. Cause it is an actual skill, um, yeah. that you can't, you know, yeah. like people go to museums and say, Oh, my kid could do that. And it's like, let's, let's see it. Let's see. You know, um, <laughs> Like I'm not trying to change a kid or nothing, but you know, like this is a a skilled artist here. And and I think that it's culturally acceptable to demean artists, but also demand their talent, you know? Um, And so that's, Mm -hmm. that's another element of like chop art in the teens um, creating artwork is for them to be able to um, understand their own value. Um, economically mm-hmm. because a lot of times with nonprofits um and, and, and also in just in education the the value of a child is put on what is their economic value to our nation you know um how like can their grades right. then translate into a college degree which can translate into dollars you know um and how what this child contributes right. to the nation um, and so even with Chop Art, we try to help drive home the the concept that um, your value is not steeped in economic um, contribution, but you should absolutely be com- uh, compensated for your work, you know. And so for the art shows, they get 100 percent of their their revenue back, you know, um, for their sales, because, you know, at the end of the day, these these kids are going to be able to benefit from that money. But also we want to show Atlanta that there is a different way that you can um, you can engage with the arts and um, and revenue around the art. I think um, like if we're talking about this social aspect of the, the 
societal aspect of this. I think that's why you have um, like arts mm-hmm. education programs as extracurriculars in school because it's not it's not something that is cared about in the way that like core curriculum is. And I think that it should be become a part of like core curriculum. Art should not be an extracurricular activity. Theater should not be an extracurricular, you know, choir should not be an extracurricular. It should be in addition to, and especially because a lot of times students, um, get most of their joy out of going to those activities. You know what I mean? Uh, It just seems, I think I'm with you on the fact that like arts, the arts just overall is not um, cared about, you know, and that's not just within schools. That's like you said, within society overall, not being able to, or not even being able to, but not paying people for the work that they do. And uh, it's kind of, I'm sure it's frustrating for you (laughs) because I know like your thing, you know, or it's not my thing. I did band back in the day. That was about it. Like I, I, I can get the musical side of that, but like, Anything else? I'm like, uh-uh. I'll leave that to you. <laughs> I mean, I think I'm in a more privileged situation because uh, I'm not a traditional artist. I'm an arts administrator, you know, and an arts curator. Mm-hmm. So from that, um, I have the benefit of being able to take advantage of overhead dollars where they're available. Yeah. Where um, yeah. a lot of my colleagues and a lot of the people who we hired to come in to teach the students won't have that same uh, privilege because people assume that what they have to bring to the table should be free. And it kind of just kind of goes into, like we were even telling a joke um, to Fahamu, who's like a, a worldwide, um, a world, world-renowned artist. Mm-hmm. And um, we were, we were like, ideating about an image that we could bring to the table and um and just like joked that we were gonna pay him an exposure. Um, now this is an artist whose work is, is you know definitely legit, you know. But uh-huh. like joke is that people if they weren't um, integrated into the arts world, they wouldn't really they wouldn't off bat respect for Hamu's art, you know. Um, right. They wouldn't respect his his value enough to make sure they paid him. And so, you know, it, it, it um, you have to have a certain kind of tenacity, I think, as an artist to demand your mm-hmm. work all the time and to continue to uh, advocate for yourself. Um, and I think it's yeah. a very unique thing that we're able to give to the teens because um, a lot of times as they experience homelessness, people challenge them a lot about their rights to feel their trauma. They challenge them mm-hmm. about their rights to have even experienced homelessness in the first place. Um, a lot of times people think that the only justifiable um, scenarios for a teen to be homeless is because their parents kicked them out. And so even when you look at research, um, there is often a, a differentiator between uh, homeless and runaway youth, um, which is to say that um, those those teens who have had to flee their households are not considered 
in this homeless population when, in fact, uh, over 90 percent of homeless uh, teens are homeless because of some kind of discord in the household. Um, And so, yeah, they're always having to validate themselves. They're always having to advocate for themselves. And so, yeah, there are a lot of overlaps in the arts and a lot of ways that we're able to serve them. Uh, Most importantly, though, I I definitely see our uh, our organization as a as a vehicle to open up dialogue and to build trust with our teens. You know, um, there are a lot of things that they experience that we would never be able to uh, provide interventions for if we didn't have an art space program that built relationships with them. Um, so things like suicide, depression, sex trafficking, um, gang related violence. Um, those things we're able to make mm-hmm. interventions for because we've used the arts to build those relationships. So, so then my question for you, because you you kind of touching on something that I've always wondered about. I know that art therapy is a. Um, I, th- I think somebody that we went to school with was studying art therapy, or like studied art therapy after we graduated. Mm-hmm. Um, but do you think that? Do you know anything about art therapy? And do you think that um, what Chop Art is doing as an organization is like kind of leaning in that direction, that art being therapeutic for the children that you're working with? Because you said um, some of the issues that they're dealing with, like suicide and um, gun and gang violence. Like, do you think that art has been therapeutic for them in dealing with their personal emotional issues. I would definitely argue that um, art has been therapeutic to them. I I wouldn't consider us an art therapy agency just because of the credentials behind that and respecting the uh, craft and the knowledge that is needed to be qualified to call yourself an art therapist. Um, I um, but yeah, I, I think that our our teens find a lot of um, solace through the arts. Um, and our last um, performance at the Woodruff Arts Center, we were supposed to get there early and go up to the rehearsal hall and just practice through, throughout the day before their um, main performance. And we just spent the whole day crying instead. Like, I know the Woodruff was kind of shook. They were like, girl, what y'all doing? But um, like, we, you know, it was the opportunity for us to purge and uh, the teens talked about their stories, but they also uh, spoke about their appreciation of the arts, that it, it gave them an opportunity to be themselves. It gave them an opportunity to be free. You know, um, so many of our teens have been able to just find those outlets. Um, and so it's really important to me mm-hmm. because homeless teens are so transient. And when we're able to uh, hold on to teens for months and years, that's a really beautiful thing because we're able to grow with them and and really guide them along life's journey. But uh, we also are very aware that if we um, interact with the teen on Monday, we may not see them that next Monday. You know, life can throw a hurdle at them and they may not be able to come back. Um, And so uh, one of the ways that we design our curricula is to be able to accommodate that transient nature of our teens so that they can take something with them if they're not able to come back that they can carry along their journey. So it's not like split into two different things, like 
do you mean so that um, pretty much they can walk out of there with something? It doesn't have to be concrete, but something that they've learned that they can take away from it and not have to come back and like continue. Absolutely. So there, uh, each program has an end goal, which is an arts presentation. So that can be a visual art show, a performing arts uh, performance. Um, but every time a teen comes into the program, they receive uh, kind of like a welcome package. And so they receive um, kind of like this bag of uh, like a sketchbook and professional sketch pencils, uh, a needed eraser, uh, paint, paintbrush, mm-hmm. canvases, uh, and then also hygiene supplies. Um so that they can, one, feel welcomed into the family. But again, if this is the first and only time we see them, so they can have something to take with them. And then the curriculum itself, each class is built to be able to stand independently, but also lock into a larger um, trajectory along the the course of instruction. So that was another thing I was going to say as far as like why I don't consider us art therapy as much is because... um, it is more arts-based instruction that is based around that specific healing that I think need. Um, so the the basis of our uh, our art therapy, you know, uh, we do have some aspects of that, but um, the the main um, objective of our class sessions is to engage in instruction um, and allow the kids to create freely. Okay, I love that. I think that's awesome. Um, and, and like you said, you're like tailoring those needs or tailoring your program to the needs of the population that you serve, which is awesome. Um, uh, one of the things I do want to ask you about, I know you've talked about like um, some situations of dealing with people who don't respect art, the arts, um, don't respect the crafts, don't don't feel like you should be paid <laughs> or feel like you should be paid in exposure, which that's entirely different. That's a, <laughs> it, it happens across the board. Um, uh, yeah, I'm not even gonna get into that. But what is one instance where you've like really had to go to bat for your mm. um, students? Where you've had to really go in on somebody or like really had to, <laughs> you know, support them in a way where somebody may have been coming at you and making insensitive remarks about your students because they are homeless youth or because, you know, they act a certain yeah, way. Or, I can, you know what I, I mean? Can, um, I'll, I'll tell you a short one and then I'll tell you another one. Uh, we had, uh, so we have this program called Dual Concepts where we have professional artists come into the shelters to mentor the teens through their creative process and get them ready for their art show. Um, And we had one uh, volunteer Mm -hmm. come in and he just was not good with kids. You know how people, they're very excited about the concept and then they get in the classroom and they can't handle it. Um, He was one of those people. (laughs) Let me let me do a little sidebar. That's why I don't like when people say, um, you know, those who can't do teach or they make comments, you know, 
teaching is easy. I can do that. I can I can walk into a classroom and be good. Like it's not as easy as you think. Yes, ten minutes in and you're already like sweating down your back and stuff. Like, come on, this is again. This these are skills. I think that is interesting how people want to devalue other people's skills as if like it is a one size fit all type of thing. But no, right. not for the fan of art. Like. <laughs> Oh, goodness. Uh, but no, he went to the classroom and um, he I think he, he lasted maybe one session. And, oh. um, and so <laughs> the the shelter lead, who is the, the year round mentor for the teens, um, let me know that, OK, I don't think this person is coming back. I don't think they're a good fit by our shelter. And so I, I spoke with him by phone and he said something around the lines of, um, these kids claim to be homeless, but they got iPhones, so I don't even get that. You know, like criticizing them. For- <laughs> oh, oh, oh. <laughs> so that's when I knew. Okay, so he definitely can't come back here. Um, but yeah, uh, it's like this this idea that people have about who homeless people can be. Right, right. <laughs> that. Uh- <laughs> So did you speak to him directly and say that he couldn't come back or did he just not yeah. on his own? Well, he, I, by that time he had kind of, he was kind of giving me his little um, kind of resignation thing anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm like, okay, cool. Uh, a time where I've had to go to bat for the teens uh, a few times because I mean, anybody who knows me knows anyone who knows my work knows that the teens will come first no yeah. matter what, like I make no compromises on that. Um, and so that's, that's usually the time where you'll see me turn up. Um, but, um, there was a, there was an instance when we were at a, a play and, um, and you know, a lot of times in the arts, um, certain venues are very, they're very much elitist, you know, you go in, you feel like you have to wear a button down shirt and, you know, sit politely and all this stuff. And so we had gone to this play and um, the teens were just really excited. They, a lot of them had never been to a play before and they're laughing and they're, you know, talking and all this stuff. Um, at, during during intermission, mm-hmm. um, this woman who was sitting in front of us turns around and says something to our teens. Now, this is a red flag for me already because I'm like, why is she speaking to my teens? Like, don't don't talk to my kids. These are the closest like, things I have to kids. So I'm like, don't even talk to them. Yeah, and I'm yeah. like, mm. um, and so um, they I, they respond to her, but it was kind of like a okay, okay, I, I'm you know I hear what you're saying type of thing. She mm-hmm. turns back around. I ask them what she said. And she was saying that one of them was kicking her chair during the play. And they were like, we weren't kicking her chair, but we just gonna, you know, of course we're just gonna let her rock because we don't want no problems. So right. uh, I'm I'm like looking at her and I'm like, oh, do I cut up in front of all these white folks? Do I cut up? <laughs> <laughs> you had to make that decision. I'm over there making Cardi B decisions right now. I'm like, I don't know what I should do. Um, So, um, and so at some point she, you know how people like, 
look from the side. Like they don't turn all the way around and look at you, but they like give you like a a cold that side. Yeah, that that side. That. Eye, that side eye. So she was doing that to the kids and saying something to her partner who was there with her. And so after the show, we're getting ready to yes. exit. And you know how when you're exiting from a theater, you have to wait until the aisle is free for you to walk out. I, I told her, right. look, ma'am, um, hi. I, I started off very polite. I said, hi, I'm Malika. Um, I'm with Chop Art. These teens are with me. I noticed that you said something to them earlier. Because, yeah, after the show, she had said something smart to them. So I'm like, I noticed that you said something to them earlier. I'm the adult here. If you need to say anything to these teens, you need to say it to me. Don't speak to my teens. And so... I can't remember what she said back to me because it just kind of got blurry. But she said, and I remember thinking, if I can jump over this seat, oh my gosh, it would be so great. Um, And so she says something and I tell her like, no, I'm not requesting anything from you. I'm telling you what it is right now. Like, don't speak to my teens. You got nothing to say to them. They can act how they want to act in here. They're not disturbing the show. Like they weren't speaking during the show. It's intermission. They can like talk and laugh at with each other in intermission. What is the problem? You know, you don't own this theater. And I remember she she pulled the, the white lady tears thing on me and started like cowering towards her her partner like I was gonna hit her or something. And <laughs> I think I just told her, like, girl, I'm not wasting bail money on you, chill. Like, and I remember like looking at me like, dang, okay, Miss Malika. And yeah, I like, I literally, it's, it's, that's like the thing that can get me to, yeah, that's the thing that can get me to step out of character. If someone, is me feeling like someone is like degrading our teens in some way, um, because they, they yes. go through life and so few people protect them, you know? Um, and they're not going to experience that with Chopper. I don't ever want them to feel like we're just another group of adults who are not going to protect them. Um, at all times, you know, their best interest right. will be held to the highest regards. And I'm glad you said something. I'm glad you waited till after Dream the play, hard. right? So that was, that was a good decision on your part. I know it was hard. You had to keep it together. At too. I but, was like, oh my gosh, I can't wait for these lights to come up. <laughs> but I also think it's important that um, that they see you, obviously. That they see you in the moment, like doing this and take and and um, you know vouching for them. But you you telling me that this woman complained about them during intermission yeah. as in like they weren't no, not during the play, play because I hadn't even noticed I saw her turn around but I thought that she was like asking them like oh where are y'all from because usually that's what happens because most of our kids are black um and we are typically in yeah. white spaces when it comes to the arts and right. so then they do the nosy thing so I thought that that's what she was doing um, but then there was a, a theater attendant that came down. So apparently she reported them to the theater attendant. And that's when I, oh. you know, uh-huh. caught wind that something was happening. Like, you know, what's happening at the end of the road, you know? And so shortly after that, the lights went yeah. back down. 
And um, and they were like, oh, it's okay, Miss Malika. She said we was kicking her chair. We're just going to switch seats. You know, like, really just, of course, just trying to keep the peace and appease this woman. Um, but my thing was is that there are boundaries here, and a lot of people think that they can just disrespect children just because they're children, um, and they have that authority over them. Because I don't think they well, predominantly black children. I don't know if all your mm-hmm. children were black in that moment, but I think people feel like they can disrespect children of color, mm-hmm. really black children yeah. more than anybody. You know, it. That's like a real tough situation, and I'm yeah, man. He did that. Didn't think anyone was going to be <laughs> there to protect you. them? Like she didn't think anyone was going to speak up for them. Right. And yeah, she had the right one that day. So I hope she learned her lesson. And she's not still walking around here talking to folks' kids. Now, um, one of the things you mentioned is that a lot of the times you all are um, within Mm -hmm. white spaces. Is that, and that's the majority of the time with like the different events that you do and like the the different venues Um, that you go to? Mostly with our field trips. So a lot of our programs are very insular and not... Uh, like available for public consumption because we're doing such delicate relationship building work that most of the programs are behind closed doors at the shelters. Um, But whenever we do our field trips, because uh, most of Atlanta's art scenes, very well-funded art scenes that can afford to provide free tickets to chop art um, are led by white people than yeah. the institutions uh, that we go to on the, the patrons are going to be majority white. Um, so then that comes back down to the equity thing of who can practice art, who can make a career out of art, you know? Um, and so typically, yeah, when we go on our field trips, right. um, is it is, um, um, majority white. And so one thing that I encourage the teens to do within reason, you know, of course not at the dog on fool, but to just be themselves, you know, uh, take up space. You belong here too, you know, um, because so much homelessness is invisibility, you know, and I don't want to take them on a field trip and uh, re-trigger them, you know, to feel like they have to hide themselves in this public space. Um, and so, yeah, we, we tell them, take up space. If you want to dance out on the lawn, you know, which they are dancing all the time because, you know, Atlanta kids, they can't. <laughs> um, you know, enjoy yourselves, be yourselves, and understand that this city belongs to you just as much as it belongs to anyone who lives in Roswell or Norcross or anywhere else. Yes, and I, I wish that's something that, well, I don't know if you had that growing up, but I wish that was something that we had more of growing up, like be yourself in these spaces, be who you are, you know, don't be afraid or don't, don't feel like you have to adjust to how other people are acting just so that they don't view you as ignorant or, you know, like people are going to view you how they want to view you regardless. Um, So I do think it's great that you're telling them to like be themselves, take up space, you know, do you? I mean, I'm all about that now. <laughs> I didn't put them all this way. I, now I'm just like, I don't care what anybody has to say. I'm going to be loud. I'm going to be proud. I'm going to be who I am. It's like you look up and you realize you've wasted so much time trying to meet other people's expectations. 
And that's always going to be a moving target. Like you're never going to be able to satisfy other people's expectations. And so like get busy being happy with you, you know, and get busy seeing the value in who you are versus uh, what other people want you to be. Right. That's real. (laughs) That makes me think of, um, I don't know if I this. I, I, um, mm-hmm. the other day, so, you know, I make t-shirts and I made black teachers matter t-shirt and I live in Lynchburg and Lynchburg is, you know, pretty, uh, it's a big Christian conservative, mm-hmm. mostly white city. Me coming from living in Chicago where, like, I was around Black people all the time. Like, you know, that was it. I didn't have, I didn't really have much of a world outside of, like, the Black community and the Latino mm-hmm. community in Chicago. But here it's so different. And I wore the shirt on Saturday, I think it was. And I went to the Humane Society here because they were having, like, half off for pets or something else. I don't know. I, yeah, it was on cats and dogs. And I was maybe like one of three or four black people wow. in the in the entire building. And there were a lot of people there. I got looks, like just because of the shirt alone. And in that moment I feel like I could have cowered. I could have been I think I think the old Angela, the old like me if I wasn't as confident in who I am and like what I stand for, I could have been like trying to cover the shirt up or probably wouldn't have even worn it about the house. But the fact that like I was able to walk through there and just like <laughs> now when people stare at me, people stare at me cause I have vitiligo too. So this also helps with that. Um, when people stare at me, I now like just look directly at them and just stare right back at them until they're uncomfortable <laughs> to the point where Okay, I'm gonna look away, but nobody said anything to me, which I was like, okay, cool. So it's gonna be a chill day today. I'm not gonna have to go off on nobody or explain, you know, why all lives matter is not, you know, whatever, whatever. Like, I'm not gonna have to do this. I could be me and not have to worry about nobody coming up to me. But it looked like a couple people wanted to. And when mm. we walked into some of the rooms, people like got up and just walked out. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Mm-hmm. What do you think helped you get to that point, though, where you were able? I know that you talked about your video, um, vitiligo. Am I mispronouncing it? Vitiligo. It's vitiligo. I, I have to look it up on YouTube how to pronounce it. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but what do you think like got you to that point where you, you felt, you know, just more comfortable being able to be your full self in spaces, even if that wasn't? something that felt like it was being encouraged honestly I think it well you're talking about my vitiligo or just like just no like even like even with the shirt scenario like you were saying that uh at another point in time you would have um felt really uncomfortable yeah uh about how they were responding to it uh but you had made this growth where do you think that growth uh, came from I think a part of it just kind of came with age and like kind of recognizing that uh, I think it was like more of a maturity thing. So recognizing that, you know, you're not paying my bills. I don't, you know, I, I, you don't live with me. I don't have to do, I don't have to provide anything for you. I don't have to cater to Mm -hmm. your, like it, it, it took kind of, 
like recentering myself mm-hmm. and recognizing that I need to always put myself first, regardless of the other people that are around me. Um, putting myself first kind of helped to grow that confidence. It took mm-hmm. some time and it took some getting used to because I think, and I think a large part of this confidence came with the fact that I have vitiligo and I wasn't born with it. Like having that and then adjusting to that, I think um, also helped build my confidence in other areas. You know, being being willing to walk out and stand and stand firm in what I believe in. But I think the large part of that was like recentering me and like mm. focusing on my needs, not what other people need from me. If that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> um, <that. laughs> Uh, it, it, it took time. I mean, I'm not going to say it was easy. Um, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, I think it's interesting because like, I think it's, it's such a common journey that we all go on of like figuring out how to, um, I call it performing blackness because I mean, blackness comes (laughs) in so many different kind of, um, ways. Um, Mm -hmm. but how to do that, um, without apology unapologetically black, you know, in public spaces. And and it took me some time too. I mean, I I always say I came from a house of uh, a black Panther and Mm -hmm. um, someone who, you know, grew up in a 1960s Birmingham and black power was always a subject in my house. Like, my goodness, we were always talking about how to be proud and black. Uh, Well, I was always getting taught how to be proud and black. Um, but it still has taken me a lot to uh, feel that comfort, you know, because there there does feel it does seem to be like repercussions. Um, yeah. Um, but then I think once you get to that point where you're like, look, I need to live my life and I need to be happy. Um, so much changes from that from that realization. Yeah, it does. And it's and like you said, it, it wasn't something like you grew up, you know, your dad, uh, Black Panther, like drilling that into you. But it's easier said than done. Like it can be within the within the, you know, four walls of your house. That can be the thing. But when you step out into the world, it's a different it's a it's an entirely different mm-hmm. situation. You know, people. People are going to react differently to you. You know, when people hear black power, they think black supremacy or, you know, black supremacist groups and, you know, stuff like that doesn't even make sense to me. But whatever, Um, you know, people get people get offended Mm -hmm. by us being celebratory of who we are. You know, the fact that I'm black, I can't be proud of that. (laughs) You miss Tina's. Um, part and a seat at the table. Yes, <laughs> yes, girl. <laughs> okay. It's such a journey, and I don't. And I, what I want, what I envision for the youth that I that I have impacted, you know, for the black youth that I've impacted, is that they don't have to go through that same um, str- inner struggle with blackness that you know, we have made, we may have had to go through growing up being unapologetic, unapologetically black from the mm. beginning to the end, like you know, not from 
okay, I'm 25. Now I'm like, okay, now I'm starting to feel myself. Now I'm starting to understand this, like knowing that they are worthy and they have value and, you know, I, that that's that's what I foresee. That's what I want. That's amazing. I'm I'm just imagining the next generation who um has who has that kind mm-hmm. of efficacy and the kind of change that will happen. But sometimes this work, even in education, in the arts, in, in black liberation, in in general, it can it, it can feel um so exhausting, and it can feel like you're you're on a treadmill sometimes. Um, but in in order to continue, um, going, you have to have the hope that it's going to happen. Like you can't do the work without, um, believing that it's possible that the, um, that what you're going for is possible. And so I'm like thinking about like what you're just describing with these, uh, kids who are like standing proud in themselves, you know, um, and how much they're going to be able to do. But even, you know, been given the empowerment to jump over those hurdles early. Yes. And and it has to start early. So, you know, I taught at a school in Chicago that was all about that. Um, Before I moved here, I taught, um, what, two years at this school? And, like, that is one of the things that was ingrained kind of in the curriculum that uh, we were teaching these students is about empowerment, like black empowerment. And so I had like students who were (laughs) unapologetically black and were not afraid to like go out and protest and, you know, talk about the injustices that are happening within their community. I wasn't doing nothing like that when I was in elementary school, middle school, (laughs) not even (laughs) high school. (laughs) The fact get out there. I mean, like, there are different videos I've seen of uh, my old students doing, like, train takeovers and protesting and being willing to go up to people and talk to them about, uh, you know, what things that they're fighting for. It's It amazes me, and it makes me proud because I want to see more of that um, in future generations, like, speaking up and, you know, recognizing that there are issues going on. And then hopefully... Sometime down the line in the, this probably will be the distant future. They won't have to do these things anymore. You know, our future generations won't have to continue to fight for the same things that we. Yeah, that's that's the goal. You know, even when um when Mike Brown first was murdered, I remember Trey Trayvon um. Trayvon sparked something in me, but it was mainly um, mainly based around sadness. Um, and then Mike Brown was murdered. I was it was like kind of that point of no return where I just couldn't, I just couldn't like um, not be as engaged anymore, you know. And I know people call it wokeness. Um, I, I I try not to do that to myself. <laughs> But I feel like that's, I, that's I, the most identifiable term with it. It's you taking the red, what is it, the red pill in uh, the Matrix? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I've never, you know, I've, this is how much I paid attention to that song. I just, I mean, that, to that movie. I just trust what other people say. Um, <laughs> like when they talk about red and blue pill and not just use context clues to, to figure out. <laughs> 
<laughs> See, I can't even remember correctly which pill was the one that made them that made them woke. I mean, like that's really the the <laughs> pretty much that's that the, the the Matrix was really ahead of that time. But no, I remember when that, yeah, when that first when it first happened in Ferguson, the Ferguson uprisings first happened, and and feeling really, um, I don't even know if discouraged is the right word, but just feeling very pessimistic, you know, um, and just hurt and exhausted early, um, because I was I just was thinking, wow, it's not that we aren't free for a lack of trying. You know, um, like I feel like all of us have come from generations of people who can tell stories about the way that they have contributed, the ways that they've contributed to um, free our people and to make sure that their their uh, lineage is going to be in a better position than them. And I remember seeing that. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, my gosh. Are we ever going to get there? Like, look at what's happening. And. You know, it almost seems like progressing. Yeah, you know? yeah, and and but th- this generation like gives me a lot more hope. You know, uh, mm-hmm. just their energy because I think my main fear was like I'm tired already. I'm like tired already, and I ain't even did nothing yet. You know, <laughs> like how are we gonna pull this off? And and that was my ego, and that was me being self-important to think that it was up to me. But uh, now understanding that it's up to all of us and that we can absolutely empower the next generation to take that torch and use that energy that they have to pick up when we are too tired to fight in the the same capacity. Right. And I think I think a lot of like as we kind of get older, um, a lot more of the work that we do um, will kind of, I don't want to say it will be hands off. Um, uh, how am I trying to describe this? Be more like we can help within like a political aspect or a financial aspect mm-hmm. or, you know, how I don't know how to describe it, where the youth are like in the, in your face and out on the streets, they hitting the ground running. Like that's, that's it. And because of the fact that they have so much energy and, you know, they're so vibrant. They can get out there and do the things that, you know, I at 40 or 50 years old might not be as willing to do, but I can still play my part as a 40, Absolutely. 50 year old down the line. Yeah. Would you say? It's like in the same way that we've needed our elders to contribute financially, to contribute knowledge, but to be on our team. You know, I think that that's something that we have a really unique opportunity to do is to break that cycle of that kind of um, rite of passage of criticizing um, generations that are younger than us and telling them how uh, insufficient they are in comparison to past generations. Um, I think that we have an opportunity to build up this next generation and to support them with knowledge and resources without uh, degradating what they had to bring to the table. Right. I think, I think, yeah, I think we had, we kind of had too much of that where on on our, not on our part, but our elders, a lot of like Mm -hmm. reprimanding or like, this is not the way that you should do this. Or um, I don't know, just even the outlook, even the, the, the views on like, um, 
Black families or the views on Black women are different with our generation Mm -hmm. than like our elder generations. Feeling, you know, them feeling like, you know, a woman is supposed to be X, Y, Z. She's supposed Mm -hmm. to take care of her man. You know, she shouldn't be making more money than him or just like very like archaic thought processes that don't even hold up. Like they don't even make sense. But you know, I'm, Girl, I'm a logical it, person. Ain't so, that in short supply? You know, I mean, maybe. good lord, good lord. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm definitely hoping for better for um, for the kids who will be, you know, taking the torch. And I hope that we'll be able to respect them enough to be able to actually uh, benefit yeah. from the potential that they have. Yes, absolutely. Um, I have one last question I want to ask you. What are your like next mm. big steps for chop art? How do you want to expand? Oh, well, well, well. <laughs> um, so we've outgrown our shelter model. Actually, um, we we started that off um, when chop art first moved to the United States. So chop art was founded in Cape Town, South Africa, and then I moved to India and took it there. Um, so when I moved back to the United States uh, in twenty. 12, that's when we actually became uh, a proper nonprofit. Um, but yeah, we started off this this shelter model as a proof of concept. And um, six years later, it's like, okay, concept proven. <laughs> so we have to move out of that space of um, going into the shelters on a weekly basis and um, and and really honor the, the demand for the work and creating an independent program space. So the next steps will be to create an arts residency program. So it'll be similar to other residency programs around the nation where um, there's a support factor, there's an educational factor, and also um, the platform provided by the organization to showcase um, the artist's work. Um, and so we'll, we'll serve teams year-round still, but we'll be able to give them more. We'll be able to provide them with the creative stipend so that as they are um, creating artwork, they can be paid for it. Um, and it won't be dependent on whether or not they can sell their artwork at the art show. Um, we'll be able to provide them with meals when they come mm-hmm. to um, class, um, provide them with a clothing closet, with a travel um, stipend, our uh, allotment, um, do Thursday therapy and, and all of these things, but most importantly, be able to, um, most important, be able to um, position this residency in a way where it can grow with the teen's professional aspirations. Um, so this residency model is more resume ready for the teens. Um, and so, yeah, I'm really excited about that. Um, this residency will put us in a position to grow into our longer goal of um, providing arts uh, and housing for the teens. And so, um, yeah, I, I, I think the mm-hmm. sky's the limit. Uh, I'm, I'm very ambitious with these type of things. Um, but I think that, you know, the last eight years have taught me a lot about strategy and, um, and timing. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's time for us to move into an independent program space and and start really formalizing what we're doing uh, in a different way. I think it'll be good to 
have a, a like a central, like you said, central location, your independent space. Um, just, just even for the sake yeah. of like a place that's like a haven for them, you know, a safe space for all of them. That is the like one central location that they can always come to if, you know, anything, if anything is going on. I think that's, I think that's great. Our residency program. Okay. You're doing it. (laughs) And exactly what you said about it being a safe haven. And um, yeah, I remember during my homelessness, just time just going so slowly um, and, and having to really strategize about where Mm -hmm. I was going to, um, sit one day versus the next because I couldn't sit in the same place two days in a row because it would set off the alarms and you know and so even taking that anxiety out of the out of the way like leaving school during my homelessness was the worst you know <laughs> because now you're you're on your own until you can get back to school the next day you know and and them having a place where they know they can go without. Uh, without worry or without judgment, I'm I'm excited to be able to give that to them. I'm excited for you. I'm excited for you. I cannot wait. Like, I've I've loved like seeing the growth of Chop Art from the beginning to where it is now. It's amazing. Oh, it's truly <laughs> of course, of course. Okay, so we gonna wrap this up with there's a game that I do every episode. Um, it's a word association game. I don't know if you've played word, word association before, but the way mm-hmm. that it goes is I will say a word and then you have to say a word that's associated with that word. Okay. And then whatever word you say, I have to say a word that's associated with that. And then we go back and forth until okay. one of us can't say anything pretty much. It's really simple. Okay. See, right now, see, right now I'm two and oh, So I've won twice. <laughs> But you get like three seconds to give your next word. Okay. Okay. And I always like to tie it into some part of the episode. So I'm going to start with my word is art. Studies. College. Professor. Teacher. Bird. I knew you were going to say that. No. I knew you were going to say bird. I was waiting on it. And you just got me. (laughs) Well, in case y'all didn't know, bird is my nickname. So there we go. Oh, my God. Okay. I I changed the whole interview not to call you bird, so. (laughs) Oh, my God. Okay. So you want to, any other announcements you have or your social media you want to give out before we wrap up? Sure. Uh, you can find us on Instagram at Hey Chop Art. That's Hey H E Y C H O P A R T. That's Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Um, if you are interested in supporting our programs, you be- you can become a monthly donor. Um, Twenty five dollars a month pays for our team's um, creator stipend as well as um, their art supplies. And so you can support a team to go through the program. Or if you're in the Atlanta area or want to travel to Atlanta 
in July, you can volunteer with our year round program or come down to volunteer with Camp Envision in July. Yes, and they are doing amazing work. So you all should definitely get, if you're in Atlanta or if you're looking to travel to Atlanta, definitely get involved. Um, so I want to thank you all for listening to us today. Thank you, Malika, for, you know, agreeing to yes. talk to me today. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, it's been great. I think, I think this was definitely a, a really great discussion, just especially about like art education, the importance of it and the work that you've been doing. Well, thank you so much for having me. I uh, really have enjoyed this so much. Okay. Um, thank you all for listening. You can follow me on Instagram at the woke. Yeah, Malika don't like that word woke, but we're gonna say it. At the woke STEM teacher. Um, so that's Instagram, Twitter. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast, leave a review, you can rate us, and we will see you next time. Yeah.